Welcome to A Seat at the Table, a podcast bringing to the feminism, dinner parties, female friendship and food. I'm Alex, your host, the creator of Spare Ribs Club, an intersectional feminist book and supper club which explores feminism and social justice through literature, art, music and food. Each episode I invite our guests to take us through their perfect feminist dinner party, three feminist icons as dinner guests, three courses and three tunes being played on repeat. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome Cosima Carnegie, aka Cosy's Odyssey. Cosy's Odyssey reimagines the ancient world for a modern audience to show people how sexy, ridiculous, and compelling ancient history really is. She's especially passionate about the intersection of sexuality, body positivity, art, and mythology. She aims to make the field of classics more accessible and engaging by popularizing archaeology, history, and mythology. She hosts events, makes and sells products, writes a blog, directs photo shoots and videos, all with this goal in mind. Thank you so much, Cosy, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm very excited to be chatting to you. <laughs> um, so, which three guests are you starting with for your dream feminist dinner party? Okay, firstly, I have to say this is such a hard question. And secondly, <laughs> I have to warn everyone, given my background, they are all pretty old. Like, I, I stuck, I kept it pretty ancient to the surprise of absolutely no one. So my top three... Uh, number one, Cleopatra. Mm. And yeah, so very happy with that choice. Number two, and honestly, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Boudicca. Yeah, I, I always yes. pronounce it as Boudicca. So I think that's right. Okay. Given she that that makes me feel better. That makes me <laughs> feel better. And then Hatshepsut. Oh, Those are my three. Yeah. So why did you choose these three guests? Well, I think. Cleopatra for me just jumped out immediately because I've always been so fascinated by her and I think you know when I was younger and first learning about her what grabbed me was kind of the flick baity buzzfeed side of things which is like oh my god there was this like really hot queen and she was like you know sleeping with Julius Caesar and like Mark Antony and all of this and then as you read more about her and you know as you learn more you realize that she was so much more than her sexuality and her ability to seduce and the way that she leveraged that to mm -hmm. sort of grab at power. She was so unbelievably intelligent. You know, it's mm -hmm. said that she spoke up to nine languages oh and God. she was super into like philosophy and mathematics and science. And I, another thing that just always like means that she looms so large in my heart and mind is that she was one of the only uh, Egyptian rulers so I mean a bit of historical background just about her um, it was a Macedonian empire at the time that had been sort of put into Egypt and so a lot of the rulers didn't bother learning Egyptian and she was one of like the only Egyptian rulers that actually took the time to learn the Egyptian language and that for me I'm like that's just that's damn cool mm, that's amazing. So, yeah so so cool so she's always been an absolute favorite of mine mm -hmm. and then moving to Boudicca I just I I don't know a great deal about her obviously you know I did some research in the lead up to this but she always sort of represented kind of a militaristic side of power mm -hmm. and for a woman to be able to exist in that realm uh and she she was fighting in 60 CE so mm -hmm. you know about 2000 years ago and so she also jumped out at me. And honestly, it's been an absolute joy to 
learn more about her and you know why she is as famous as she is and then the third one uh my third choice Hatshepsut which I'm probably going to mispronounce 85 times honestly because it's just a bit of a tongue twister to say (laughs) but she is known as the female king of Egypt Mm. and she reigned uh between the years of 1473 and 1458 BCE so about 1400 years earlier than both Cleopatra and Boudicca so she's very much you know the oldest the oldest of my guests um going way back when um and she what's so fantastic about her is that she just exercised absolutely unprecedented power as a woman and was able to adopt all of the titles and regalia of a pharaoh, which was a really big deal. Um, And then her, like historically, it's really interesting. Um, Her and her stepson were co-rulers, but she was very much like the dominant ruler and she had like a really long, fantastic reign. And then when she died, the stepson, Tutmos III, he actually did this like really gnarly sort of marketing campaign (laughs) and like, literally scratched out all of the depictions of her everywhere so you go and you can see her temple in Luxor and the artistic renderings of her have literally been scratched out so you can't see her and to me that's just made her so so intriguing that she was so powerful that that's what you know the men that came after her that's what they felt the need to do that's I've never heard that story that's an amazing story I mean obviously I've heard about Cleopatra clearly um and she's she's famous for a reason she's fabulous yeah Yeah. and as is Boudicca and I think growing up in the UK the kind of Celts history and all that kind of stuff Boudicca is like a big figure in our ancient history um but no I hadn't heard of Hatshepsut I'm also going to butcher her name throughout this (laughs) (laughs) she must have had a nickname or something like Hatch or something like Like Hattie (laughs) Darling Hattie. Maybe I'd call her Hattie around the dinner table after. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So do you think these three women would get on around a dinner table? I mean, I honestly don't know because I think why I picked them is because for me, the three of them represent this sort of really interesting cocktail of femininity and feminine power and in that they are so different. You know, you have Cleopatra, who's very, very bright, but, you know, was made famous by her ability to sort of seduce and enchant men. Mm-hmm. And then you have Boudicca, who is famous for just being, like, milit- like militaristically an absolute weapon. Mm-hmm. And then you have Hatshepsut, who was, like, you know, did this incredible sort of marketing, cross-dressing thing to and screwed over a lot of the men in her life because she was, like, I want to be Pharaoh. Like I'm not messing with like any of my sons, stepsons, whatever. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm in charge. So I think like a couple of big personalities around the dinner table. I'd be very curious to see how it would go. Yeah. And um, and where is this being held? What are you envisaging to kind of the the setting and the tablescaping? I really, I'm just a sucker for like a long banquet hall kind Mm -hmm. of thing like just candles absolutely everywhere Mm -hmm. and just this very sort of sumptuous Mediterranean I mean honestly similar to the tablescape at our book club event that was all about Circe so you know olive leaves sort of grapes Mm -hmm. like flowing everywhere and these like large ornate jugs of really heavy red wine Mm -hmm. 
Mm. just very Mediterranean, very ancient, moody, candle lit, like mm. bordering on subterranean kind of vibe, like <laughs> almost like we're in a cave, but not really. I love that. Um, and what tunes or kind of what kind of music is going to be on repeat all evening? <laughs> well, I know we were speaking about this earlier. <laughs> and given that, you know, these women uh you know i mean the the youngest that i'm using you know quotation marks the youngest of them is uh 2000 2000 <laughs> years ago um i think even the most gentle of like heim or something really mellow like that would throw them for a loop so <laughs> i've settled on just having like a beautiful person playing like the lyre in the corner or something you know okay. maybe some like light drums just like super chill yeah. super ancient really gentle you super know, chill I, super ancient. <laughs> yeah you know that's my vibe like really mellow really old like that's what's up <laughs> no I think you're yeah you're being a good host you know you're, you're catering to to what they they would probably be more comfortable with to be honest yeah I'm trying to be thoughtful <laughs> yeah, yeah I also I mean I think Boudicca might kind of run out of the room exactly <laughs> I feel like one of them would kick off and yeah. it just makes me nervous I think it you know Cleopatra would have some stern words Boudicca would probably run slash attack um I'm not sure what Hattie would do I, I feel like she'd just be so confused yeah <laughs> She'd also be like, why are you calling me happy? <laughs> <laughs> this is a thing now. <laughs> um, We're starting it. <laughs> so what what are you drinking? What's what are you kind of starting the night with? Okay, well, I think starting the night, I'm really keen for champagne and oysters because I think in Cleopatra's case, she's used to decadence. And I think Hattie as well. And then for Boudicca, I'm like, it's a treat. It might give you immediate food poisoning. I'm so sorry. But, <laughs> you know, a sort of decadent, lovely moment. And I did want to explain something uh, to do with the champagne because there's this fabulous story about Cleopatra. And I do say story because it's not, you know, obviously the historical record with stuff that's this old is, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit blurry. It's a bit uh, fudgy. Uh, and I'm, I'm not ignorant of that so I'm not claiming that this is historical fact but there's this fantastic story about Cleopatra and specifically uh the banquet that she had with Mark Antony where and it was just I think it was all part of their kind of like erotic competitive thing that they had going and they had this banquet where they were both essentially competing as to like who could out bougie the other one like who could put on the most decadent banquet. Mm. And so, you know, they were, it was, I guess, like quite close, quite close. And then there's this very famous moment where Cleopatra takes off one of her like priceless pearl earrings, drops it in some wine, and then the pearl reacts with the wine and starts to fizz. And that's the kind of mythologized story of the, you know, beginning of champagne, which I just love. Oh, I love that. That's How so fabulous. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, I made this. <laughs> no, literally, and there, oh my God, there's this painting in uh, the National Gallery of Victoria back mm. in Melbourne. And it's this giant painting and it like captures that moment of her just holding the earring out, about to drop it in the wine. And you're just like, oh my God, Mark Anthony, go home. Go mm. home, my guy. <laughs> like, you have been schooled. <laughs> Oh, I love so that. that that's my champagne choice and then broadly I think for the rest of it just like 
big heavy reds mostly because that's my favorite but also because that's a lot of what was being drunk in the mm-hmm. ancient world mm-hmm. very safe to drink in some instances a lot safer than water yeah i doubt anyone's complaining about that so yeah lots of red wine and the, and they'd be used to red wine as well that's you know that's a exactly um and with your oysters what are you have you got any of the kind of normal accompaniments with them lemon that kind of thing or are they kind of plain I think pretty I think really fresh more than I'd be focusing on like the accompaniments I'd want them to be like they'd just been plucked out of the ocean like 15 minutes before and shucked in front of you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that would be the priority for me and maybe some lemon but not you know I just would want them to do the talking, you know what I mean? Like they'd yeah. ideally be high enough quality that they wouldn't need Everything any sort of parting up with a vinaigrette or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. oysters are the best. They're so good. Oh. They make just they make you think of summer. Oh my god, yeah. And being by the sea. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and how about for your main course? Well, this, I'm going to be honest, this has very little connection with the three fabulous women that I'm inviting. This is just my favourite thing to eat, which is a giant thing of roast lamb with, like, every possible side. And, again, very decadent, very indulgent, would go really well with the wine. I think these women would be used to lamb broadly, mm-hmm. maybe hatty less so than the other two, but I reckon the other two, they'd be like, yeah, we, we know what this is all about. Yeah. And I think Hattie would just be too like proud to admit that she had no idea what was going on. She'd be like, yes, roast lamb, delicious. <laughs> and then she'd just, you know, she'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of sides will you be having? Like 600 million roast vegetables. Yeah. And I'm a big, like, I'm a big like sauce gal. Like I need gravy. I need different types of mustard and I need horseradish. Like I need lots of different types, mm-hmm. lots of different options. That's very That's- important to me. Would you have them um, in, so in the UK? We have mint sauce a lot with lamb. Is that the same in Australia or is it not? I I think it is, but just me personally, it's never been my thing. Not no, really. Do so you prefer a horseradish? I mean, horseradish is good. It gets you in the nose. It's so like oh my god, completely punchy. I, I think, think I'd be traumatizing these women. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, but but that's boudicca. I mean, I to be fair, I don't know a huge amount about the like British slash English diet or Celtic diet from that. 2000 years ago neither do I (laughs) that's all ingredients that was kind of around at the time lamb yeah vegetables probably horseradish I presume yeah Um, I mean it's basically a Sunday for Sunday roast exactly exactly so I feel like she's probably fine not super alienating just like the music choice like you know yeah. I feel like throwing the three of them in one room is chaotic enough I'm like everything else can just be like you know welcoming and like gentle <laughs> yeah and, and how about for pudding oh well again this is just my favorite like a molten chocolate fondant mm. with salted caramel sauce mm. because it's the best pudding in the world oh delicious so good I think that might kill them you know do you <laughs> Have you seen all those memes where it's like, what would you feed like a little, you know, peasant boy in the 1200s that would immediately kill him? (laughs) I I think a molten chocolate fondant with salsa caramel may kill at least one of them. If not all three, I'd be curious as to my strike rate with these 2,000-year-old figures. These are very much, it's pre-chocolate times for the West, I think. Well, okay. 
in in fairness, I think if anyone was going to be able to cop it, I think it would be Cleopatra because surely she's been smashing all kinds of like syrups and liqueurs and whatever, whatever. So I think she'd be like, okay, okay, I can hang. Not sure about the other two. (laughs) No, I think Boudicca and her delicate English stomach would be like, sorry, Celtic stomach would be like, no, no, thank you. (laughs) Have a complete meltdown. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds delicious, and I think you'd be having a great time. I'd be having a great time. So that's all that matters, really, isn't it? And maybe they'd all be so drunk by the end of it, they wouldn't even want pudding. Yeah, this modern alcohol idea, that's going to be something else as well. Exactly. (laughs) I'm thinking, like, sticking with ancient wine, so maybe I'm the one that perishes because the ancient wine is so, like, strong or vinegary or whatever that I can't hang. So, like, the opposite of distilled. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It just punches me in the throat and then I pass out on the table and then they have a fabulous time without me. <laughs> um, and how's the night kind of progressing? What are you talking about? I think, like, I'd really like to talk to all three of them about what womanhood means to them. I know that's such a massive abstract question but again as I said earlier what I think is so special about these three is how different they are and how they were all able to exercise power in very different circumstances and in very different ways so I'd be I'd be fascinated to learn about what they think what you know how they construct womanhood in their mind and you know all of the things that I think um we as modern feminists living in 2023 sort of grapple with which is you know the classic how much do you play the game versus how much do you subvert how do you play the game in order to advance you know and work within the confines of patriarchy whilst at the same time you know drawing your own lines and you know trying not to uphold too many ghastly problematic things I think the three of them and you know what what they achieved and the way in which they achieved it, I think, just provides three really different compelling examples of how you can, you know, survive and have power within patriarchal society and in the ancient context. Mm. That's a really good point. I, I also wonder whether we're so aware of inequality and feminism and what it means for us to be women in kind of 21st century society and navigating that I wonder whether they would see their uh, gender in quite the same way um, or if they kind of see themselves as their power is just theirs rather than anything to do with their gender because you know I guess with Cleopatra it's obviously a hereditary thing are they all technically hereditary um, kind of powerful by by yeah yeah I think I think they all you know are in that kind of pool of women that inherited you know the various titles but the three of them are very much sort of standout examples of Mm -hmm. you know they had so much more power than any sort of queen before them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think I think that's a fascinating fascinating point and a really good thing to think on because I mean at least with the example of um Hatshepsut right like Mm -hmm. she obviously had like a very sort of sophisticated understanding of gender in that she literally cross-dressed as part of consolidating her power like she Mm -hmm. initially was depicted as a queen 
that was how, you know, the first bits of art depicted her. And then there was sort of a middle stage where she and the royal artists were experimenting with depicting a female body in the sort of like regalia of the king. And then towards the end of it, they were like, no, nah, screw the middleman, bang. She's in the like proper pharaonic kit and she even had the false beard. <laughs> so, you know, she very much took on masculine attributes because that was how you know best served her in order to exercise power and then you know Boudicca again another very different example um Celtic women were fighters right like they were trained physically in a way that a lot of other ancient women weren't and so the fact that she was able to command the armies you know to defend uh her kingdom in the way that she did like that again very different because Mm -hmm. that was just you know the society that she was raised in and yes you know she was born into a very like positive uh very fortunate position uh within the society but that's you know another interesting thing because she didn't have to you know sort of break with tradition to like be a part of military things like women were already just in the ancient Celtic civilization were just more involved in that side of things Mm -hmm. and then you have Cleopatra another very different example where she used her brain and 100% she used her womanly wiles and realized that she needed the Romans on her side and it was Julius Caesar first and then Mark Antony later because that's what she needed to do to protect her empire and protect her kingdom. Um, do you think? Um, do you think this evening would end in dancing or too much drinking or fighting or arguing? <laughs> I mean, idealistically, I just really hope they all become best friends, and that sounds so naive, <laughs> <laughs> like so wildly naive. Like I want them all. To like you know have so much wine and then end the night like all holding hands mm. and just like crying on each other but in that beautiful I mean I don't know if you've I'm I'm sure you have actually because I feel like it's like such a beautiful feminine experience where you just get to that point in the night where you and your girlfriends are so drunk you're all just like holding each other's hands being like no I love you yeah. and I love you <laughs> and I just think you're really pretty and you're really smart and you know what like I don't tell you enough and that that's what I want that's what I want for the three of them to like bridge all of the differences, the differences of their politics, the differences of their backgrounds and just be like, no, you're amazing because you did that thing with the army. No, you're amazing because you speak nine <laughs> languages and then just like weeping on each other. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Like that kind of energy when you're out and you go into the girl's bathroom and everyone's just kind of. Exactly. Yeah. You trust those women with your life. I want you that. trust those women in the bathroom with your life and your firstborn, yeah. 100%. It's funny because with really ancient historical figures, and I'm sure because you study them and kind of talk and write about them a lot, um, humanising them is really important, especially humanising them as women. Kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, I've never seen those women, Boudicca or Cleopatra, etc., as women with kind of emotions or that kind of thing, when clearly, obviously, they were just human beings. Yeah. With, a, you know, myriad of feelings, just like all of us as modern women. Um, well, if you think about Cleopatra, she came to power when she was 18. Mm. 18. Mm. Like, could you imagine the 
entirety of Egypt just at your feet. You're mm. 18. I don't know what you were doing at 18, but Jesus Christ, I would not have had <laughs> any idea where to begin. No. I mean, it's obviously a completely different time, but yeah, I think, I guess what, what you try and do in your work is try and bridge that gap, that time mm. gap to give these women a kind of more human voice. Well, and also just to kind of undo um, a lot of, I mean, for lack of a more sophisticated phrase, like all of the ghastly press that, you know, especially like Hatshepsut with her memory literally having been erased by the men that came after her and Cleopatra, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the way that she exists in the sort of mainstream cultural imagination as like the femme fatale, the seductress, blah, blah, blah. Like that is in such a massive part due to, you know, the Roman men that were consolidating power after her. So Mm -hmm. Augustus is the one who was like descended from Julius Caesar and beat Mark Antony and, you know, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Mm -hmm. And so then Augustus wrote, you know, sort of wrote the entire story about her because it was so important to him that he wasn't seen as like fighting other Romans. Mm -hmm. So she just became this like, you know, caricature woman who had just sort of ensnared all these like good honorable roman men with all of her wily you know eastern ways i mean it's like it's racist it's sexist it's ghastly and it means that we have to do a lot of unpicking and unlearning now to sort of get at the historical fact and get closer towards the woman that she actually was and do you think um that you would kind of speak quite openly with the three women. Do you think you'd feel comfortable? I mean, would I have a weapon on me? Yeah. This is my immediate follow-up question. <laughs> would I have some kind of weapon? Because <laughs> um, I think definitely, like, Boudicca's got a weapon, right? I mean, Hatshepsut's probably hiding something in a false beard that I'm scared about. And Cleopatra's probably found some way to, like, train a snake to kill me if I say the wrong thing. So if I'm, like if I feel like the vibes are amicable enough and potentially if I have like a bodyguard or I myself am armed, then I would love to speak very openly with them. (laughs) Or given that this is my like heavenly dream dinner party, maybe I'm already dead. So then yes, absolutely. Maybe this is just kind of some iteration of Mount Olympus slash, you know. Oh my God. You're speaking my language, Alex. You always do. (laughs) when when did your kind of obsession with the ancient world begin uh way back in the day and look I'm not gonna lie about it it was Percy Jackson (laughs) I'm like I'm like every other bitch man like honestly (laughs) it was Percy Jackson when I was really young and I went down an absolute rabbit hole and I started reading all about Greek mythology and all of the different characters and the stories and the monsters. Mm. And then there was one moment when a dear family friend gave me my first copy of the Odyssey when I was like 10 and I was so excited, you know, didn't read it for years because it was way too difficult for a 10 year old. Let's just be really real here. But I was very excited in that moment and then that same family friend like two years later we were learning about it in year seven or year eight or something and he explained to me the sort of significance of the myth of Persephone and he explained how the pomegranate seeds that the goddess Persephone eats which end up trapping her in the underworld that they're 
a metaphor for sex and for the loss of virginity. And I remember my little baby 12-year-old imagination having that explained to me that something to do with fruit and the underworld and all of this could mean so much more and be so evocative and symbolically loaded. It just blew my mind and it grabbed me by the throat and I have been a huge geek for it ever since. (laughs) Why do you feel that making kind of the ancient world and mythology accessible, particularly to women, is is so important? I mean, I think I think I could answer that question for four hours. Um, so I'm going to try and keep it concise for the sake of you and for the sake of your listeners. Um, but I think first thing is that the field of classics, uh, I mean, what's that fabulous rhyme that someone coined however many decades ago, like pale, male and stale? Mm. It's, you know, that's very much the way it's regarded and there's so much elitism and there's, it's just this horrible house of cards, which is just built on snobbery and nonsense and deliberately making so much of this information harder to access because it's, you know, it's just this sort of self-perpetuating ghastly system that I take great issue with. Mm. So that's a part of it. And then I think when it comes uh, to women and to how, you know, women can sort of get something out of this, For me, looking at the diversity of like material culture in the historical record, so just all the stuff we find in archaeology and all of the different um, representations of womanhood and of the female body, I think that is incredibly comforting. So just because you don't necessarily see yourself on the cover of, you know, Sports Illustrated or whatever doesn't mean that you're not represented. It doesn't mean that you can't find you know, a body that looks like yours. And so that's always been really powerful for me. And then also broadly, I mean, and just focusing on the uh, physical side of things for now, like when you look, you know, when you look at history and you look at it rather than think about the last 50 years, when you're looking at the last 3000, you can see that so much of the body standards that we are sort of saddled with as women, they are constantly changing. And given the fact that they're constantly changing, it's just so gratifying because you just realise that they are complete bullshit and there's no actual ideal and it's a complete cultural invention that is subject to change at any given time. And I feel like that's just a lesson that we could all just remind ourselves of and remind each other every single day because what we are faced with now is not super lovely to put a to put a gentle point on it Mm. and 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 let alone the mythology inside of things it is I mean (laughs) do you regret asking this question no I I mean I was going to ask kind of obviously in March you co-hosted our um meetings and we chose the book Circe which is a kind of retelling but um and and a means of kind of kind of mending that bad press I guess um, mm. I think I know the answer to this already, but I, it may have been. <laughs> uh, but what is your favourite mythological retelling? Oh, favourite mythological retelling. Mm. Oh, I think The Children of Jocasta by Natalie Haynes. I think that's what it's called. And what's that kind of, what's that about? What's that retelling? So that is uh, all about um, the women that are in 
the story of Oedipus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's not something, you know, and this was years ago. My boyfriend at the time bought it for me for my birthday or something. I'd never heard of Natalie Haynes really, you know, had no idea what I was sort of plunging into. And I started reading it and she told the story of the myth of Oedipus from the perspective of his mother, Jocasta, and from Ismene, who is this, you know, incredibly unknown female character who still, you know, almost no one has heard of her, but she took two perspectives from this incredibly famous myth and just fleshed it out in this beautiful and profoundly heartbreaking way. And I think, you know, we all sort of look at the meme, like it's, it's such a sort of memeified myth now, right? Like Oedipus, like, you know, he fucks his mom, he marries his mom, you know, mm -hmm. ha ha, WTF kind of thing. But she took a story like that and actually painted this version where you kind of see how the myth might have formed and where, you know, facts turn to fiction and the kind of heartbreak of it all and the pathos and the everything. It just completely knocked me out. Mm. Um, unbelievable. So you've eaten, you've drunk loads, you've maybe <laughs> kind of cried with your three guests. You've hopefully, made... <laughs> hopefully. I'm manifesting that, Alex, please. <laughs> What time is the evening ending? 4 a.m. 4 a.m. That's very precise. Yeah. And you're right yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> was that was that hours of discussion or was it hours of dancing? I think dancing. And I think, you know, I think what would be really cool as well is like imagine if you went around the table and you just asked them, like, tell me, just tell me a story. Tell yeah. me a story. And then they just stand up and they tell you a story, whether it's fake, whether it's about their life. I yeah. feel like the three of them would be such unbelievable storytellers and would have such a command of language and charisma coming out of their ears. You would just be like, yes, keep talking. Do you think there would be kind of gossiping about, you know, men and boyfriends and husbands and that kind of thing? Honestly, no. Sorry, that was very heteronormative or, you know. No, no, no. No, no, I, I don't think so. I think I really don't think it loomed large. I mean, perhaps loomed the largest in Cleopatra's mind. But, yeah. And, of course, we can speculate about how much of her sort of romance and sexuality and the affairs were to do with her desire or mm -hmm. to do with consolidating her power. And that's mm -hmm. one of those ones that we will just never know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure about that. But Boudicca, you know, her life became very difficult when her husband died and, you know, the Roman empire did unspeakable things to her and her daughters and Hatshepsut, I don't think ever married like the, and I was researching, you know, brushing up on it today. And there was one line in this article that I was reading, which is like, Oh, it's speculated that Hatshepsut's closest advisor, you know, they may have been romantically involved, but there's no evidence. It's like, why does it have to be like, every single time that a woman is like closely working it's like oh you know they were in love it's like not necessarily man maybe they were just hanging out yeah because they never with like a single a historic a single historical figure they never say yeah there was rumors that he was you know shagging this woman or this woman it's just kind of implicit like it's just implied that yes he would have had some kind of romantic attachment to women but it's mm -hmm. not it's not a focus of discussion no women have to be put in that little box every mm -hmm. single time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think the incredible work that you're doing with this podcast and the book club and everything is just 
pulling them out of that box and they can be in their own box or <laughs> not even on a box on something else that's far better <laughs> yeah I mean and you as well kind of just giving a different context to the way that women are seen by other women and by men and that kind of thing is really important yeah I mean on that topic I always ask my guests um one kind of final question um oh I'm ready I'm nervous yeah. <laughs> but I'm excited <laughs> what are you doing on an everyday basis in a small way so it can be kind of a really tiny action um to become a better feminist either for yourself or for others that's a great question I think I oh, that's a massive question there are like 12 things running through my head but I don't know which one <laughs> I don't know which one I think like personal level or work level or both I think yeah do both do both Okay, work level, I think, you know, um, you know, you know the work I do and so much of what I do is about uh, not only like uplifting women and creating spaces for women to share, but also building community mm-hmm. and building really lovely, supportive spaces for women to come together and connect and be vulnerable and be strong and learn and share and particularly with, you know, the poetry events that I've been a part of uh, I think I've put on about three in the past year mm. and that's been a really really special uh, thing to watch women get up and be so vulnerable in such a lovely supportive group and then as well are uh, the naked dinner parties that I've worked with my friend Charlie Ann Max on that's another really really special thing that I've been a part of that I think is hugely beneficial to everyone that attends um, and particularly for the women that attend and have all kinds of, you know, complex issues and, you know, just sort of complexities around their body mm-hmm. um, coming to an experience like that and, you know, being surrounded by so many other bodies and all of that, like that's something that I'm really passionate about. So that's like the work side of things mm-hmm. uh, for me. And on a personal note, uh, just I really, really take my female friendships incredibly seriously. And for me, I just work on meaningfully apologizing and having the healthiest confrontation between myself and my female friends as possible, which as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, it can be very hard. We've all been trained in a lot of different ways to not necessarily be direct or to project or take things personally or, you know, all of this stuff. So, you know, I just really work on my relationship with the women in my life. And that is so important to me and will always be so important to me. Those are two wonderful answers. <laughs> you put me on the spot there. I was like, oh my God. I never warn any, that question I never warn anyone about, but every single time it's been a good answer. So, Well, that's lovely. on the spot. No, it's working. It's good. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Susie, for coming to talk to us today. Um, thank I've you so much for having me. It's been a joy. <laughs> I've loved your dinner party. I've had a great time. I was slightly terrified at the beginning. And at, and at, <laughs> and at certain points throughout, I thought that maybe, you know, something was going to happen. But ultimately, um, I've had a wonderful evening. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Alex. <laughs>